through the book of Exodus, you're going to get introduced to a God who is very particular. He is a certain way. He is a detail-oriented God, and he does not want to be taken casually. And you'll find that he makes sure that that impression gets on people. He wants them to be prepared to meet with him. He cautioned Moses last week when Moses discovered this burning bush and came near to it, the first words out of God's mouth with a man that had never had a conversation with God was not, hey, bud, good to see you. How about a high five? It was, don't come any closer. Right? Subtitle, Moses, you have no idea what you're messing with. And that's the reality. You and I have been introduced to God by people who didn't do a good job introducing us to God. And so, therefore, we are very casual. We treat God like he's one of the guys. Uh, and there's, there's an amazing element of God that this God of the universe who, who defies description and who we can't find words to fit this God, he borrows words from our language, our limited language, and he associates them with himself so that we'll have some reference point. And thank God that he uses words like Father, that there's a sense that we draw near to a God who is our Father. But if, if your vocabulary for God is only Father, you don't have enough of a vocabulary for God. And you know something about fathers here on earth, and you know something about being a father, and you've taken your very limited understanding and you've imposed them on the eternal God who, who just borrowed a word to give us some kind of an idea about an aspect of who he would be to us. But, you know, I, I never got greeted by my dad with, stop right there, Keith, don't take another step. My dad didn't do that. I've never done that to my kids. I don't have that kind of power flowing out of me like, hey, kids, hey, ooh, before you come into the den with me, you might want to take your shoes off. I don't know, pull your hair back, something. I'm just radiating stuff today. You know, this is God. He's different. And so you and I, sometimes we get around God, and, and, and this is, uh, I, I hope we made this point last week that there are places that God has created that are different than the other places that God has created. It's not God thumbing his nose and saying, hey, no, wherever you were before you were on holy ground, boy, that's second rate. That's lousy. I don't even know why you're wasting your time there. No, no, God called Moses to live in these other spaces, but there was, there was ground upon which God was going to do something and he was going to affect this man's life in such a way. That's what we get in this story of the burning bush. And it was going to be a different encounter with God than Moses could have anywhere else. And you don't treat that setting the same way you treat another setting. Okay, being in this meeting is not like getting up in the morning and brushing your teeth. But God's there with you. I hope you know that. Right? You're brushing your teeth in the morning. God is there with you. But God is here differently. And he calls on us to be here differently. And I think that's lost in our world today. We have fit God in amongst so many things that there's way too much common ground and not enough holy ground. So the sad thing is, is you and I, we walk into this place over and over and over again. And, and if there's anything that causes me severe concern is, is when you get raised in this environment. I came in from the outside of it. I didn't know anything about a setting where God dwelt and he was there amongst his people till I got saved and came into that and, and, and I was in a totally different posture. You get exposed and exposed and exposed and exposed to holy ground, but it's never holy ground to you. You become immune to holy ground. You come to a place where you no longer recognize it's holy. It becomes familiar in a bad, bad way. So one of the things we want to help us do here is to avoid turning this into common ground. This is some tips that would help you. I'm not going to go through these tips with you. You're, you can read this yourself. It's part of a bigger article that John Piper did a number of years ago, but it's about preparing to meet with God. And, and I just encourage you, where, where there is little preparation, there's often little encounter. And you encounter 
that distant burning bush God enough times, right? You live in Midian. God lives way over there. You know something of a God. There's a manifestation of a burning bush. But you don't turn aside, as we said last week. To encounter that God, you will grow up with a God who burns in a bush at a distance. And can I just tell you, ain't nobody going to Egypt to rescue people out of an idea that there's a God who's burning in a bush way over there. That's not what sends Moses into this life. What sends Moses into this life is when he turns aside. Turning aside, it's a lost art. Well, unfortunately, actually, I I find today in the Christian universe, we are turning aside from holy places in order to be in common places much more often. Right. Can, can I, I know this is irritating when I do this sometimes to you, but this is reality. And, and quite honestly, I, I am not interested in pastoring a fake church. I, I don't want to do this for that reason. So when the lifestyle of a Christian becomes, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I don't know how much time we're spending with God in that setting. And then the weekend is coming and it's a lumped event and the weekend's got stuff in it, right? Because, hey, busy people. And we know a lot of people and there's a lot of things going on. So I got events happening on the weekend. This is what's happening in Christianity today. If you get a couple of events parked on a weekend, people take Holy Ground Sunday meeting with God and shove it to the side and say, well, man, I just can't get to that this weekend. Well, when, you know, when you did that, that other thing became Holy Ground to you. It became important ground to you. It became something that you said, I've got a limited amount of time. I'm going to make sure and devote some of that time to that event because that's that important. And somehow this became unimportant to us. Being in a setting where your faith could be affected, where you could set your eyes on God, where you could encounter the living spirit of God, where the spirit inside of us could breathe the air of God, got set aside. And that becomes normal. Because there were lots of other people on Facebook who set it aside too. Can I tell you, you can, you can live in Midian and you can hang out with sheep and you can stare at God from a distance and you can live a life that will get characterized by those features. Or you can do what we're going to encounter today. You can encounter God in such a way that he will turn your world upside down and then you will become an instrument to see other lives get turned upside down. And that's what's here. So I hope you saw our sign on the way in some, some, somewhere this morning that you saw a burning bush encounter with God that asked you to please turn off your cell phone. You are now on holy ground. And I know that sounds cheeky, you know, but it's true. This is not like another setting in your life. You are not driving in your car right now. Whoever needs to get in touch with you needs to stand in line behind God. Whoever is posting something, God is posting something right now. And this is holy ground. He doesn't want to compete with other people's attention. I don't think he wanted Moses correcting the sheep. Hey, God, can you hold that for just one second? I need to get these sheep back in. I don't think God gave a rip about the sheep in that moment. Like, do you just need to take your shoes off and, and just be careful you don't get incinerated? I don't know. You know, burning a bush here, Moses, I'm God. And God's doing something this morning. Now, if, you, if you're not ready in your heart to say, you're right, I need to turn my back on some things right now, and I need to be focused in, and I need to be sensing God in this room with me, then, then you're not prepared to be here. And that just can't continue. We can't be those kinds of people. The, the, the purpose of God in our lives is too big. It's too important. It's too worthy. So, so we are on holy ground. And so whatever we need to turn aside from, turn aside from. Whatever you got going on this afternoon right now, forget about it. Oh, but it's pressing. So forget about it for right now. Just be in this room with the Lord. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 3. And keep this in mind as we read this passage again. Put this in your outline. Holy ground exists because God is holy. 
He is different. He is unique. He is like nothing else. And so when you and I get around God, it is a different experience than getting around anything else. We are a gathering of people, but, but so is the Pelicans game, and so are the Saints games, and, and so is getting into a movie theater. That's a gathering of people too. This is a gathering like no other gathering. Right? When you get around God, it's like getting around no other human being. You get around some people a certain way. You get around God uniquely because he's God. So holy ground gets created because God is holy. Holy ground exists because we don't interact with God the same way everywhere or all the time. Now this, this is, for some of us, theologically needs to be tweaked out a little bit. Because we have, a, we have a doctrine of omnipresence. We have an idea that God is everywhere. We have the, the sense that the spirit of God dwells in us. So we, we take that and we extract it into God is encountered the same way everywhere all the time. That's not true. It's just not true. That that concept you can make a case for from some passages, but when you look at the experiences of people in the Bible, which God chose to put there, their experiences scream out at us, this location for that person was different than that location for that person. God did something different there. And if you start treating every moment like it's the same, you're going to miss God somewhere along the way. So this is a different place. And then all these little different places that God's created are holy ground in unique ways. Holy ground exists, and this is where I want us to land today. Holy ground exists because there are callings in our lives that we simply won't have the courage, the creativity, or availability to pursue without these encounters. It is this encounter and exchange with God that gives Moses the courage to do something that is ridiculous for him to try and do. Ridiculous. You do get the scene here, right? I can't say it any better than a man with a stick is going to confront the most powerful human being with an army in the world. This guy overthrows governments and kingdoms. He advances his army into that terrain, and everybody becomes subservient to him. They had an army. They had land. They had things they were defending, and they couldn't resist this guy. And here comes Moses with a stick. It's ridiculous. He never had the courage to go do that. He never had the creativity to go do that without having met with and been near God, and he definitely would not have been available. So you and I need these encounters. So let's read again Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near Take your sandals off your feet. The place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Well, Lord, whenever we open your word, we are reading inspired truth that you have placed there. Lord, of all the stories that there were to tell, 
These were the ones that you have preserved for us that we might know and understand you, your ways. We might understand our own lives in light of what you show us here. So, Lord, help us to do exactly that today. Spirit of God, lead us into the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We just look today at, at some point, God's purpose, the title of this is God with Human Hands, Feet, and Speech. At some point, God shows up in people's lives with human hands, human feet, and human words. And it's God, right? And that's what we're going to see here in Moses' life. I just want to walk us through this call that Moses receives. It's, it's unique in some ways, and it's generic in a bunch of ways. So I want us to see some of that. Verse 8, a mission gets defined and a method gets revealed. And this is important because I think a lot of people miss God because they have ideas about God, but they don't get how God operates. So therefore, they just miss God all the time. Well, here is a revelation of God and a revelation of his method. How does God go about doing what he's doing? Verse 8, I have come down to deliver them. Verse 10, I will send you to Pharaoh. All right, so you have God's up to something. God has said, I'm the one doing the delivering. I am sending you to Pharaoh to deliver them. So you get introduced to something here. God displays what he's doing to Moses, and then he displays how he's going to do it. This is not a plan that God shares with Moses that Moses can read about in the paper You know, just pay attention in days to come. Watch what I do, Moses. I'm going to do something, Moses, and you are going to be the hands and the feet and the speech through which it gets done. Then there's a a place here for us. You know, I, I don't know if you feel this way, and I think every Christian should feel this way. That you you are here today living your life on a mission. You are on a mission. You are not on a self-created, whatever I'd like to do with my life existence. You are on a mission. And missions come from somebody besides you. Right? When you go on a mission, right? When I think of missions, I, I, you know, I think of army missions, you know, a group of soldiers that were sent on a mission. Uh, well, they didn't send themselves on that mission, right? Some strategy was in place, and some general decided that we need this activity over here. Uh, we are going to attack here and defend here. You are going to go do this, and you get assigned a mission. Well, in the mind of God, you know, God is creating mission, and he's assigning us into it. So every one of us here are on a mission, My question is, when we get on this mission, when God defines the way in which you are called to fulfill his great mission, you are going to bump into something along the way that's going to make you think you shouldn't be on this mission. The mission, if it's a God-sized mission, it's it's God-sized. It's not easy. It's full of challenges. It doesn't make sense. You don't feel like you're capable Something's going to go wrong. Wrong is a relative word because it could just mean that this is how God is playing out his purpose. But we call it wrong because it doesn't feel like it's taking us where we're supposed to go, right? So in Moses' situation, some stuff's going to go bad. Things are going to be hard. Things are going to be unrewarding. Things are going to be challenging and difficult. And, you know, sometimes I don't think we're very well prepared for that. Um. I know any of the guys who are meeting with husbands and wives or, or engaged couples, you know, sometimes we're, we're trying to prepare them for the day that doesn't feel like they're in love. All right? We're trying to prepare them for the day that doesn't feel like, ooh, a, a bridal gown and hors d'oeuvres and all my friends together. Oh, I'm getting married. It's going to be great. And, you know, so we're trying to say, well, you know, that's great. And, and, and we're excited about that too. But, but there's this like year one thing and then this year five thing and then this year 20 thing. Can we talk to you about that? Right? Can we prepare you for that? And so, you know, years ago, I started sharing with people the sense of, you know, God calling people and you making sure you took time to make sure you were listening for God when he called you. 
Right? Because when Abraham leaves Ur of the Chaldees, he's walking away from a lot of stuff that would have been comfortable, easy, continuing in his life in the way in which he knew it. And he's going to get to a place where he has no answers. He doesn't know what to do. He's not familiar with the territory. He doesn't have any allies there. His relatives are going to get in conflict with him. They're going to depart. He's going to be on his own. It's not going to feel fun at some point. And in that point, you know what he's going to do? The same thing Moses is going to do. When Moses walks out of this meeting with God and he steps into God's purpose, and, and it gets hard, right? These, these people that are going to be traveling with Moses... They went from cooperation to complaining pretty stinking fast, right? You guys remember the rest of when we get into Exodus here? So it's not going to be this great event all the time. There's going to be moments in which Moses doesn't know what to do. The task seems overwhelming. The question, am I doing it right? As soon as he gets to Egypt, things don't just go like, hey, press this button and that button and that button, and the doors will open up and Pharaoh will lay down and you'll leave. Well, it doesn't go that way. It's going to be difficult and challenging. So in that day where God's called you to something and it becomes that way, you're going to ask this question. Is this really what God wants me to do? Is this really where I'm supposed to be? Did I marry the right person? That's the number one question I hear in that regard. Uh, and let's, let's face it, the answer to that is full of human thinking. I, mean, I don't know anybody in this room who, you know, God lowered tablets from Sinai with you and your wife's name on it, a heart, you know, shaped brick. <laughs> I just knew it was God. Oh, I wish I could get out of this, but I know it's God. You, know, you interacted with something and you made a faith decision to marry that person. Right, so I would say these, these launching moments are pretty important. Uh, today, being a Christian, I have, you know, I get the opportunity to meet with and talk to a lot of pastors now. And being a Christian and being a Christian leader and being a pastor in the body of Christ is, is different now than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, different in this sense. It doesn't advertise its reward the way it once did. And when you reached into people's lives, there was a time when there was a greater level of responsiveness in people's lives than there is today. People don't respond as much as they once did. Churches don't flourish the same way that they did. People's affection for the kingdom of God is not the same way as it used to be. Well, you know, if you're a pastor, you're looking for a sense of comfort. Am I supposed to be doing this? Am I being effective in what I'm doing? Is this fruitful? So, you know, a person who pastors a church, well, how do you know whether you're being fruitful or not? Well, the church world has taught you that you know, your church will just keep growing and growing and growing, and you'll build building after building after building, and you'll fill it up, et cetera, et cetera. And so pastors start looking at that because it's something you can take a stick out and measure. And most churches today are going in the opposite direction. So if you're a pastor in that setting, you're trying to figure out, did I make a mistake Am I not doing the right thing with my life? Should I be doing something else? And, and these are genuine questions I hear pastors asking today. What do you do when the thing that God calls you to doesn't reward you the way you thought it was going to reward you? I mean, when I was, uh, I guess I graduated high school, I was in college, early 80s, and I, can, I got approached by some, some people who were in the financial stock market world, right? So, you know, I'm at that point, I'm wrestling with God's call in my life. I'm going to school for engineering and I'm getting around these people who are talking about stockbrokers and all the money that can be made. And man, you should think about this as a career. So yeah, I looked into it. I learned some things about mutual funds and trading stuff, et cetera. And, well, you know, if you followed the stock market from about 1982 to about 2007, it was a ride, baby. I mean, if you guys invested in stocks in 1982, you had a couple of little bumps along the way, but you had the, you know, the Dow Jones went from like 700 in 1982 to 14,000 in the year 2007. So you're thinking, hey, being a Wall Street stock guy, that's my call in life, baby. Man, I, I know I've heard from God, reward, 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 reward. I invest and it comes back, invest and it comes back. Well, all right, we'll go back and revisit the stock market and see that it's not always that way. 
there are seasons in the stock market. You know, there was a great crash in what, 1929 that, you know, it, it didn't significantly move up until like 1940 something. It just sat and it went down and it went down. Well, if you were a stockbroker then, what, did you miss God? No, it was a different day, man. You were living your call in a different day. All right, now we're Americans who have, have ridden the bubble. The bubble of the 80s, the bubble of the 90s taught us something. That everything just expands and gets better and better and better. If you own property, real estate, buy anything, and it'll just improve in value. Right? And then the bubble burst in the 2000s. And all of a sudden, everybody's stuff went this way. And people then start questioning, did I miss God? Well, can I just warn you, whatever you do in your life, whatever your assignment is, it's going to do this and be very rewarding. It's going to do this and be very hard. It's going to do this and be very rewarding. And you're not going to be able to figure out whether you're doing what God called you to do just by seeing what kind of fruit you're getting back. How many of you guys know I, I just described your parenting experience <laughs> and your marriage, right? We had great years and then I wanted to kill her and then she wanted to kill me. And then we had good years, right? This is, this is the world that you live in. How do you know you're in God's will? Well, you, you need to pay attention for these sorts of moments where God launches you with faith into something he's called you to be and to do. This moment matters in the kingdom of God. Right, now, God is about to reveal his method here, right? In, in verse 8, verse 10, I have come down to do something. I am sending you. All right, this is God's method. It's everywhere in Scripture. This is not the exception like, hey, that's kind of different. You know, God doesn't do that elsewhere in the Bible. No, he does it everywhere in the Bible. Right? God didn't need Adam and Eve to manage the earth for him. I think he's got that. He created it. He could assign angels. He could just think his way into managing the world. But he assigned human instruments to do that. When there was a vast judgment upon the earth in the great flood, God assigned a human instrument to rescue humanity from that. God assigns Moses in this setting. There's a day of, of great falling apart in the kingdom of God in which God is looking to move in Isaiah chapter 6. And God asks this question, who will go for us? Come on, God, you don't really need somebody to go for you, do you? When did you become a God who can't do it yourself? All right, well, listen, argue all you want and create all you want a theology that detaches God from humanity. But when you read the Bible, you find God has chosen to attach himself to humanity. Jesus Christ came and accomplished the most important thing in the history of humanity. His work of going to the cross, receiving the judgment of God upon himself, mitigating and, and dealing with the hostility between God and us, bringing forgiveness to humanity, what an announcement this gospel is, and he turns around and entrusts it to 12 little knuckleheads. I mean, these 12 guys were somebody you grew up with. I mean, they just were. They were one of us. And, and the gospel that will revolutionize and resurrect the world just got put in the hands of people. So what we see in Moses here, God's great care, his love to see a people get rescued out of Egypt and brought into the presence of God and the purpose of God, and God gives this role to a man named Moses, this is not unique. This is what God does all the time. So I think I'm accurate to stand and say before us, whatever in your world, right, and I've got a world I live in, and there are, there are people who live in Egypt, and there are this, there's this nearness of God and the purpose of God over here. And, and those people going from that address to that address is what I pray about. I hope you pray about that. That's what I pray about, right? I want people to come out of the bondage, out of the affliction, out of the possessiveness of sin and its destruction in their lives. I just don't want them to have that activity cease. I want them to be face-to-face -face with the God that I've become face-to-face -face with, with the God that I know has created them for fellowship with him. But how does that happen? I just pray about that, turn my back on it, hope somehow, mysteriously, these people just all of a sudden get transported over to this new address. Because when I read in the Bible, people go to these people 
And God uses them, hands, feet, and speech to bring them to this new location. That's how God does this. Which means in your world, there are people in Egypt, in some way, I think this is true for every person, that are, that are awaiting you getting on holy ground and encountering God to tell you, go into their mess and bring them into this new place that I have for them. And if you and I are waiting for that to happen with somebody else doing it, well, then everybody thinks that way, right? There's a somebody else for everybody. But Moses had to walk in this purpose, right? Question, do we operate with a mindset of God's revealed method? I've come down to do something in people's lives. I will send you. A.W. Pink says, now that the time for deliverance had arrived, what is the method of divine procedure? Had God so chosen, he could have sent forth his angels and in a single night destroyed the Egyptians? Had he so pleased, he could have appeared before the Hebrews in person and brought them out of their house of bondage, but this was not his way. Instead, he appointed a human ministry to effect a divine salvation. There's little need to apply this to ourselves. God's way then is God's way now. Human instrumentality is the means he most commonly employs in bringing sinners from bondage to liberty, from death to life. Listen, how many of us are waiting to hear the joyful news to celebrate a story about somebody who came from Egypt and came into the purposes of God. We love to hear that. I love to hear that. I love those stories. The church can have an appetite for it. We value that and we want to hear it. And we hope that people are sharing their testimonies with one another. They stand up and maybe give them a chance to share on a Sunday gathering. And they tell the story of I went from here and now God has me here. And yes, we cheer that on and we love that. But the kingdom of God is not set up like, like there are players and there are people in the bleachers. Like, there's some players, there's a handful of players. What do you, what do you pack, 72,000 people in the, in the Superdome? You got 53 players on, on two teams? So, I mean, look at the proportionate numbers there. And there's a bunch of guys who are playing and doing and a bunch of people waiting to cheer what's happening. That's not the kingdom of God. That's the saints, but it's not these saints. In the kingdom of God, everybody's playing. Everybody's involved. Everybody is entering into some kind of an Egypt in your world to bring people into some kind of great purpose in God. And so if we're all sitting around waiting for that to happen, we read something wrong. Who are we waiting for to have it happen? Waiting for the pastors? Waiting for the... Table leaders at Alpha to do this? What, what, what are we? We're misinformed. God's instrumentality is us. All right, so let me ask you this. You know, as you spend time praying and you, you're praying, you're eager to see God's kingdom come, right? Well, first of all, what does that even mean for you? Right? In your understanding of the world that you live in, you want to see God's kingdom come and your heart would just get flooded with joy if that were to happen, right? What would flood your heart with joy? if it happened right now in your life. Think with me, don't, don't, don't go dead on me here. Think for a second, what for you right now would make you fill up with satisfaction and joy if, if these things could just happen? What exactly is coming to mind for you? What have you been praying about and hoping for? God, let your kingdom come. God, please do this. Please show up this way in my life. Please touch this situation. You know, as we pray about those things, what are they, right? Moses' holy ground encounter with God. If Moses could act, get access to praying about the kingdom of God just a day before the burning bush, what do you think his prayers would sound like? Oh, God, you got to help me with these sheep. God, you know I've got bills to pay back in Midian. I'm not way over here on the edge of the wilderness for no reason, God. God, you know my, what my father-in-law is like. You know the pressures on our business. 
God, you got to help us be successful this quarter. We've got, we've got to turn things around, God. Now, listen, I'm not saying that's wrong. That was the land in which he was called to live. But, but once he encountered God on holy ground, how many of y'all can go with me that I bet his prayer started to sound a little different? I bet he started praying about people in Egypt and conditions there, the opposition that he needed to be prepared to face, this opponent named Pharaoh. How, how, you know, God, speak to me again. I I don't know if I understood exactly what you wanted me to do. I need you to speak to me again, God. When the kingdom came in Revelation at that holy ground moment, I, I bet you it redefined what he was praying about. And I bet that might happen for us. I'm afraid some of us have, have learned to dream dreams and to want God to give us these dreams, but I, I'm not sure where the dreams come from. We dream about stuff and we want things in life. You know, David Platt wrote a book a few years ago called Radical. I love the subtitle. It was Taking Your Faith Back from the American Dream. That was the, that was the subtitle of the book. Because I think the American dream has taught us how to dream, and then we've reached into the Bible and borrowed this thing called prayer, and we're praying about the American dream in our lives. We've done this bad connection thing here. We haven't met God on holy ground so that God could give us his kingdom view. This is what I'm doing. It's going to redefine your life, Moses. Midian will no longer be your address. Quarterly success for the business will no longer be what you're concerned about. I'm redefining your life, and my kingdom is about this, and you're about this now in a totally different way. I'm not sure if we're ready to dream some of the dreams that God has for us to dream. You know, and what's interesting, if you're reading from the ESV, this word's not going to jump out at you, but just a little previous, how did Moses get in Midian? Right? Remember the story, it's in chapter 2, verse 15, when, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, right? But Moses fled from Pharaoh, so he leaves Egypt fleeing from Pharaoh. He stayed in the land of Midian. That word stayed doesn't capture the origin of that word. Uh, the New American Standard uses the word settled. He settled in Midian. The, the word there in the Hebrew, that's word, is, is the word for sit. Just settled down in Midian. I wonder how many of us have found our own little Midian and we have just settled down in Midian. We are, we are seated in Midian, in a, in a land that features the things that we are comfortable with, right? Used to be a lot of preaching in the body of Christ about getting out of your comfort zone. You guys been around a while, you remember that? I think that's, what, that's what that is. Midian becomes a comfort zone. Midian becomes the place where the talents that I have, the abilities that I have begin to define my life. This is, this is what I will do and this is what I can do. And, and I'm comfortable here and I, I'm settled here. But there, there needs to be a moment when God encounters you that says, but I can bring your life into a realm of activity that you would never do in the natural. You'd never do it. But I can bring you into that. And I have a purpose and I want to give it to you in your life. But Moses, you're going to have to leave Midian to do that. Listen, this, this, is, this is God's methodology. God reaching in and using human instruments to accomplish divine purposes. But this is similar to us. We're, we're probably in Midian when God finds us. And what most of us are doing in Midian, it's not bad stuff. This isn't bad stuff. I'm trying to say tending sheep is bad. The man's got two kids. He's taking care of his wife. He's earning a living. He's being responsible, supporting his, his relatives in a business venture. There's nothing bad about this. But, but I, I get concerned that we have so over-domesticated the Christian calling that that description of Moses and Midian is, is just fine with us. Let's all be Christians who, you know, we, we've got decent jobs and, and we're caring for our family and we're, we're all aiming at being good husbands. And, you know, that's it. That's what it means to be a Christian. And, we, and we're part of a church and we give some money and we, you know, we engage that somewhat. 
Can I just tell you, if, if that's who Moses had been for the rest of his life, you would not know anything about him. Moses is not written down here for you and I to explore and know him because he was a good family man or a good businessman. Everybody ought to be that. Everybody ought to be that. The reason why you know anything about Moses is because Moses was a deliverer and a lawgiver. That's why you know Moses. You know Moses because God reached into his Midian world and said, I've got something for you to do to advance the kingdom of God. Don't hear me say that anything in Midian is bad. This isn't bad stuff, but we have just over-domesticated God. And we've made this mission of God somebody else's doing rather than ours. When God reaches into your Midian, you're going to have to figure out how to do whatever he said to do and take care of your wife and raise your children and perhaps have a business that you're responsible for. You're going to still need to be responsible there while you answer God's call to do something that he's calling you to do. Right? God, I mean, we said this last week. God did just reach into them. Let me go find all the unemployed Moses and the guys who are single. And, you know, people got no, no earthly responsibilities. That's my Moses. That's not God's Moses. God's going to mess with your Midian when he calls you to follow him into his purpose to answer the kingdom of God. I mean, I mean, Moses is a big, obscure, way off in the distance guy to some of us, so it's very hard for us to, to jump into this realm. But let me introduce something to you. And this is, this is a, I don't know, what are those things you beat on over and over again? Got an issue. This is an issue for me. I don't know what the heck you call it. <laughs> uh, all right, all right, maybe no one in this room is called to take a stick and go confront the most powerful person in the world. All right, maybe that doesn't describe anybody here. But God uses human instrumentation. That needs to transfer into every one of our lives. God's purpose gets connected, that word that we heard this morning prophetically, gets connected to our lives some way. Right? Um, think with me for a moment. I think I put this passage in your outline. The angriest moment of Jesus' ministry. Now, there may be a few. Jesus wasn't always uh, just smiling. But the one that sticks out for me is the day he walked into the temple. And he looked and observed what was taking place in that temple. Money changers. People selling. And he starts tumping these things over. He's cutting people off, right? What do you read there in Mark chapter 11? They came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it into a den of robbers. All right, now you're left to interpret something here. What's the source of the heat? Now, I got an opinion, and I'm going to support my opinion in one second. I don't think the source of the heat was so much the den of robbers as much as what that temple had stopped being in that moment. You made this into something else than what I designed it to be. I designed it to be a place of prayer for the nations. I put on earth an address, a location where people that I would accept them coming to me, where I don't accept everybody else coming to me, I created a place where people could come and be in covenant relation to me and speak to me about the kingdom of God coming so that it could come and bless the nations. And you've turned it into something else. I don't think this was just a matter of I don't like these grubby people taking money from each other. Well, I think that was it too. But he could say that without saying this. I think the heat was about you have turned this into something that's neglecting something that cannot be neglected. Right, Exodus, you guys probably know this verse, but if you're quick with a 
thumb here. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7 just for a second. Exodus is on its way somewhere, right? We've got people coming out of Egypt, going to travel a distance. They're going somewhere, right? Most of Exodus is concerned with something. It's concerned with this thing called the tabernacle, which if you'd like to understand the tabernacle a whole more, you can come to the School of the Word class that starts next week and begin to get some detailed description about what God installed. Because the reason why God took all these actions is so that he might dwell among his people. What was God after in Exodus? He was after a people who would dwell with him. His presence would be with them. So he created this place called the tabernacle, and eventually we get a teaching later on that the tabernacle turned into a permanent facility called the temple. And that temple gets dedicated one day by King Solomon. In that moment, King Solomon, he prays, if you go back into chapter 6, he prays a prayer to God to dedicate the temple, asking that God's face would be toward this place, asking that God would listen to the prayers that come up from this place, asking about life. When, God, when we go to do life, and this thing happens to us and it's detrimental to us. And this thing happens to us and it affects our lives. And, and, and we wander from you and there's, there's drought and there's all kinds of conditions that, that we need somebody to do something about this, God. If we pray to you from this place, will you listen to us? And will you respond? And will you take action on our behalf? That's the context for this very famous verse. Verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear. Yes, Solomon, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this Place For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. My house of prayer. Why was Jesus dumping over tables? Because there were vines and neglect growing over a human instrument that God had created for people to stand in the presence of God, miraculously that they even were allowed to do that, only because of the work of Jesus Christ to give us access to God that way. But when you walked into that temple, there weren't people praying. They turned it into something else. When you walk into churches today, are people praying? Or have they turned this into something else? Some of them are even good things, right? We love to be together. We love to hang out. We love friendships. We love to connect. But this is a house of prayer. This is some kind of weird portal into the heavens that pulls down the purpose of God into this world. I, I mean, I know that sounds weird, but that's what this thing is. And yet if you survey Christians today, what is prayer in our lives? What does it look like? Prayer meetings? Ha! That dinosaur died a long time ago. Used to have prayer meetings in the church. We still have them. They don't look like some, like, like this, they don't look like Second Chronicles chapter 7. We, we've turned our whole lives into, what, what if the, the Christians in this world have unique access to God to pull down blessing from heaven into this world? And we're so busy, we've got so many things going on, we've got so many explanations as to why we never pray. But we don't have a Jesus who'd dump over any tables in our world, though. But I think he would. Because there's human instrumentality in the purpose of God. We can't sit in the bleachers and just think, oh, well, just somebody somewhere is doing something and God's going to just do. God is sending Moses and God is raising up people to pray. God uses human instrumentality. And the church misses out and scratches its head and wonders why there's not power and conversions and change and overcoming sin and distance from being entangled in the sins of this world. We wonder why? 
because we don't live in these purposes. I think God wants to disrupt our Midians and call us to live in a purpose that's much bigger than us. We are part of God's purpose. He has yoked himself to us. And listen, uh, you know, our, our call may not be to go to Egypt, but our, our, everybody's called into their prayer closet. Everybody. Everybody's called to tell people about Christ. Everybody's called to serve the kingdom of God. Everybody's called to give. Everybody's called to have faith that God's purpose will come to pass. It's not a passive act. That's a call from God for every one of us. Let me give you these quick warnings and we'll stop. If you're going to fulfill God's purpose in your life, you're going to need to encounter God this way. And listen, I know I'm laying some stuff heavy on you this morning. Let me tell you what won't help us. Your encounter with a guilty bush won't help us. All right, so whatever is going on inside of you right now, I know I feel the room. Everybody, oh, jeez, Keith. Um, okay, I'm not trying to guilt you into anything because I know that doesn't last. You can forget about those guilty feelings by Tuesday if they'll last that long. So I'm not here to guilt anybody into anything. This is not some shame on you. You ought to be doing better. I'm just trying to point something out to you in, in the Bible. That this man named Moses, a guy kind of just like us, had such an encounter with God that it turned his world upside down and the kingdom took off in amazing, miraculous ways. I want that. And I think you do too. I don't need to encounter guilt. I need to encounter the God who's in the bush. And just let him speak to me. I just need to hear him use his name on me and inform me about who he is. But warning, as soon as you hear God telling you to go, this is what's in Moses' life. Warning number one, you will not be on a mission for God without battling self-doubt. As soon as you start taking your first steps, you're going to sound like Moses. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Right? His self-doubt continues into chapter 4, verse 10. But Moses, right, God's dealing with Moses, revealing things, and Moses is arguing. Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I, I, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, Go. And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he keeps arguing. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> right? You can have an incredible encounter with the living God who reveals himself as amazing and powerful and awesome. And you still will argue with him. You can't do what he's calling you to do. Right? A.W. Pink says, the Lord had favored his servant with the awe-inspiring sight of the burning bush. He'd spoken of his tender solicitude for the afflicted Hebrews. He'd promised to be with Moses. He'd expressly declared that he would deliver Israel from Egypt and bring them into Canaan. And yet all of this is not sufficient to silence unbelief. Nothing but the divine power working within us can ever bring the human heart to abandon all creature props and trust in God. Moses was timid, hesitant, fearful, unbelieving, rebellious, and yet God used him. All right, so as you step forward, trembling with all of your reasons as to why you can't do this, uh, well, the biggest key thing is, well, like God goes with you. Of course you can't. Of course you can't. Warning number two, you will not be on a mission for God without being tempted to have more faith in the power of sin and in the fallen condition of this world in which you're being sent than in the working of God. You will not go far in the mission before you feel like that can't be overcome. That sin right there can't change. That person cannot. They're beyond. They're not going to respond. This is not going to work. And you, your faith is in the fallenness of humanity and sin and how it operates in people's lives. Right? I mean, he's he's going to argue this in chapter 4, verse 1. Moses says, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice 
But they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. They're not going to cooperate with me, God. You got people in your life? Okay, all my family, cover your ears up. I believe that about all the people in my life. <laughs> I believe no one's going to cooperate. God, whatever it is that I'm supposed to be doing, they're not going to cooperate. Why? Because, well, because I've read about the doctrine of sin. I know it operates in people. I know it's seductive and powerful and deceptive and gets its roots in people and it blinds them. Yeah, it's all from the Bible. <laughs> but God's going to go with me. And I'm going to need an encounter with God that convinces me of that. And that's the last warning. You won't accept the mission without being convinced of who God is and that he is with you. Eric, go ahead and come back up. Um, let me just say this. Let me go back to beating on a hobby horse. That's what it is. When you beat on a hobby horse, isn't it? You beat on a hobby horse, you ride a hobby horse. You ride a hobby horse. I beat them, but some people ride them. Um, <laughs> Let me just encourage you in this. At some point early in my Christian life, probably was in the early stages of me wrestling through being a pastor, um, God in his grace wrestled me to the ground, not physically, but in my heart, and, and did some things for me to see something about prayer that has mattered to me from my life ever since. And so there are, there are elements that I would say this, you know, you climb into sort of this prayer closet, this exchange with God. You turn aside, turn down noise, you get face-to-face -face with God. There are exchanges that take place in that moment that have a redefining effect on how you see everything. Everything. You walk out of those moments... overloaded with who God is. Moments when you've managed to be quiet and listen and the Spirit of God begins to pour this way in your life. You stop just complaining out loud and listing off the critical things that God needs to do by the end of the week. And, and God just begins to share with you his personage. And suddenly grace is overwhelming to you. And, you know, all those attitudes, the harshness that lives in me, the, the impatience toward people and things that lives in me, and I'm just with God and the grace of God, I taste it. It, it humbles me. I, I begin to realize I don't deserve anything from God, and he's faithful to me anyway. He is dead set, correctly using the word, on engaging my life and blessing it, and I'm in touch with how much I don't deserve it. And that, and that changes how I interact with people. I, I become a different human being to people who I would have been impatient with, unkind to, judgmental about. And then there are moments when you just feel like everything's going wrong. It's not working. It, does, it hasn't worked in a long, long time. I don't think it's ever going to work, not with that person, not with this circumstance. And you get around God, and, and God just imparts something to you about himself. And, you, and, and it's like you just have these moments. They're mysterious encounters where it's, it's like this flood of, of God's wisdom comes into your heart and you start recognizing God at work in ways that a few minutes ago I wasn't seeing that. I wasn't open to it. I didn't have that factored into how I feel about life. It was only, only my time in a prayer closet that did some of those things for me. I can tell you that there are exchanges with God that won't happen in this room. And I think there's a lot that goes on in this room. There are some things that when you turn aside and you get with God, your experience of the life of God will redefine your world because you will see and taste God in such a way that you're going to be a different person. So let me, let me say this to you in a way that is a little haunting, hopefully memorable. I think I wrote it down somewhere here. 
prayer, like nothing else, turns you into another person. Prayerlessness leaves you like you are. Moses became a different man this day, a different man. And it's all over the scriptures. Paul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. That encounter redefined that man. You and I have got to get around God that way or we will continue to live unchanged lives. I I, I will continue to be as arrogant and as impatient and as judgmental towards people as I've ever been. I will continue to take on small task after small task after small task because I've I've got a small God and I haven't been around a God who's big. And so I'm not inspired to take risk. I don't step out in faith to do much of anything because I just hear about a big God from a distance over there on the side of the mountain. I can barely see the little bush burning. I don't know God this way. Do you see how much had to get undone in Moses? And Moses was face to face with God and still could argue. Can you imagine how well you and I can argue if the only God we know is burning at a distance in a little bush? I can out-argue Moses any day in that moment. But I don't want to out-argue Moses. I want to go. I want to respond to God. But I need to get near him to do that. Let's, Let's stand up together. just to be in prayer just receive something from the Lord personal how's God want you interacting with what's here in Exodus chapter 3 but I did feel like I needed to ask this question to some of us here this morning how many of you are here God is or he has been calling you to disrupt your your Midian life and go on mission with him. He's been sensing God. It's it's been a little bit of an argument on the inside. A suspicion that whatever the things are that you are giving yourself to, that that God's calling you to adjust something. He's calling you to take a step. It might be intimidating. You may have arguments. You don't know how to make it work. You are struggling with faith to believe that you could, that it would be fruitful, that you had the time to do it. But the one thing that you have a sense of is that God is disrupting my Midian and calling me to something at this time. I just sense that. How many of you just raise your hand if God's been dealing with you that way? Hold it up for a second. Thank you. Can we pray just about the Lord meeting us? His presence, holy ground, communicating, communing with us. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for where we are right now. Lord, thank you for the setting in which you have placed us and called us. Lord, I trust that you will clarify and qualify that this is is not a railing against the land of Midian. But it's just an awareness that there are moments in which life in Midian was intended to be disrupted by conditions in Egypt. And we were supposed to hear that. We were supposed to take on tasks that were intimidating and too big and didn't fit. And we weren't the right guy for all kinds of reasons. My background, all things that I've done, people won't listen. They won't find me credible. I'm not good enough. I can't speak that way. I've got a past. Well, that didn't stop you from having a purpose through a man to fulfill. And that doesn't stop you today. 
So God, this morning, would you disturb us in Midian? Or disturb us in that place, Lord, set a burning bush that captures our attention. God, maybe you're doing that through the messages the last couple of weeks. God, you're, you've ignited a bush that won't go away. And Lord, you're calling us to turn aside, to make room to encounter you, to let you speak to us personally, to draw close, reveal yourself to us in such a way that we are compelled and there's a vision set before us and we go in your name and we trust you. God, I pray for all the hands, all the individuals who raised hands just a moment ago. God, they're, they're just sensing you doing something. Lord, that was a lot of hands. Lord, that's a lot of missions to go on. God, how exciting it is for some people who are living in Egypt to know that there's a God-sent man or woman on his way to touch their lives, to believe, to bring the power of God to bear on their situation to invite them into the nearness of God and the covenant with God. Well, that's some awesome, great news for the kingdom of God to come. Lord, we, we pray that. Lord, it's in the Lord's prayer. We pray thy kingdom come. Lord, thy kingdom travels through our lives. It's got feet and hands, and it uses words that come out of our mouths, even when they're not the greatest of words. Lord, you go with us, and that makes all the difference in the world. So God, in one of the words that was given earlier, Lord, there's been any here who have been hiding from you rather than hiding in you. Fearful, unbelieving, no confidence, distracted, too busy. Lord, whatever it is that we're hiding in, Lord, help us to hide in you. Help us not to be hiding from you. Lord, you're calling us to things. Awaken that call in our lives this morning. God, make it, make it to be a bush that won't burn out. It continues to summon us and call us until we have heard from you and encountered you in that way. And God, send us. Send us as a church. Send us as people. Send us as ministers of your gospel, clothed with power and awareness of who our God really is. must be more than this oh breath of God come breathe within there must be more 